Now, as you're turning there, uh, a few weeks back, I opened up a sermon comparing Burger King with Raising Cane's. Now, for some reason, fast food was on my mind this week as I was preparing the sermon, and I thought about a different slogan from a different fast food restaurant. I wonder how many of you here have ever eaten at the restaurant Rallies? It's okay to admit it. Oh, a few of us here. Okay, great. Uh, so rallies, there's one. The ones I know of, there's one on West 150th and Lakewood. There's one on Holland Road and Brook Park. Uh, so for those of you who have eaten at rallies, this is the next level of knowledge. Do you remember rallies slogan? Oh, no. Okay. All right. That's good. Um, it's part of the point that you don't know this. Um, so their slogan is, you got to eat. That's their slogan. You got to eat. At least it used to be. Now, just let that slogan sink in and percolate for a moment. I wonder, what do you think Rallies is trying to accomplish with the slogan, you got to eat? Now, maybe we can give them the benefit of the doubts, and maybe Rallies is trying to say, hey, we know that people are hungry and need a lot of food. So here at Rallies, we can satisfy that hunger. There is a less charitable interpretation of the slogan, you got to eat, however. Uh, maybe with the slogan, rallies acknowledges their place on the totem pole of restaurants. And so maybe it's their effective way of saying, we get it. You probably would prefer to eat at other restaurants, but hey, you got to eat something. So you might as well eat at rallies. <laughs> well, however way you slice it, rally slogan is true. You and I got to eat, but there's a problem. Even though we got to eat, that doesn't mean we'll eat the right food. In fact, we might up eating the food that they serve at rallies. <laughs> but Jesus knows the truth that rallies knows. People got to eat. And Jesus knows that people have a hunger and a need that's more than just physical and temporary. People have a hunger and a need that is spiritual and eternal. And just like for physical food, Jesus knows that we seek to satisfy the, that hunger and need that is spiritual and eternal. We seek to satisfy that with the wrong kind of food. So today we'll read of Jesus's command to come to him, the true bread that gives eternal life. And we might think that Jesus gets discouraged when people refuse to come to him, so it would surprise us that Jesus remains confident even when people refuse to come to him. That's what we'll read of in John 6, 22 to 40. I invite you to follow along as I read. After I'm done reading, I'll say this is God's word. If you agree that this is God's gift to us, would you say with me? Thanks be to God. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the, Lord saw, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Main idea or main point of this passage, Jesus commands us to believe in him for eternal life. But when our stubborn and blind hearts refuse, Jesus does not lose confidence and neither should we because Jesus will accomplish his father's purpose of saving those whom the father has given to him. We'll break down our time in two sections. First, Jesus's command where we'll notice three ways that Jesus relates to people. And the second section is Jesus's confidence where we'll see how Jesus confidently answers two different questions. So first section, Jesus's command. This will span from verse 22 to verse 35. If there's a way to summarize Jesus's command, we could do it like this. Jesus's command is simply to seek him and believe in him. To seek him and not just physical bread. That's the banner that hangs over this entire section as Jesus and the people go back and forth in dialogue. And Jesus gets this banner command over to them by relating to the people in three different ways. So first, he sees through them. Second, he summons them. And third, he just spells it out for them. Now we get some buildup before it becomes clear that Jesus sees through them. As John usually does, he begins a new section setting the scene for us. So verse 22, it tells us that the conversation between Jesus and this group of people happens after what was an incredible day. Just the previous day, Jesus had fed a group of what was likely 20,000 people, all with a small boy's meal. And then later that night, so just the previous night, Jesus walks on water and saves his disciples who are in a storm. And by doing two of these things, Jesus shows that he is the one God has sent to bring about a new exodus. Both of these actions relate to what God has done in the first exodus. Just like in the first Exodus, God delivered his people from Egypt when they were in the wilderness. He fed them with manna, with bread from heaven. So here is Jesus in wilderness-like conditions, feeding people with bread that is miraculous. And then, just like in the first Exodus, when God delivered his people from Egypt through the water so that they walked on dry ground, here is Jesus saving his disciples, walking on water as if it is dry ground. Previewing here, both of these actions, that Jesus will bring about a greater exodus, not just from Egypt, but an exodus from our captivity to sin and to death and the devil. And so here we are, the day after that happened, and the people who witnessed Jesus, these feed the 5,000, 
go and search for Jesus again. So it's the next day. The first place they go, we see, is the last place that they saw him. And they get confused because they only saw his disciples leave on a boat. And they assume that Jesus stayed behind for the night since there was no other boat there. But they don't find Jesus in the place where they left him. So word about Jesus has spread to other regions. And everyone goes then to the other side of the Sea of, the Ga- of, the sea of Galilee in search for Jesus. And they all wind up in a city called Capernaum. Capernaum was on, is on the west side of Galilee, and it had become basically home base for Jesus's ministry. So if we skip way ahead to verse 59 of John chapter 6, it seems like people found Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum. And when they finally find Jesus, the people sense something mysterious about how Jesus ended up on the other side of this massive lake with no boat. And they ask him, But notice that Jesus does not indulge them. We might picture Jesus saying, you guys will never believe this, but I actually walked here. (laughs) Well, if, if Jesus said something like that, that would only feed their wrong view of Jesus, a view of Jesus that Jesus himself sees in them. In fact, you look at verse 26, the first words on Jesus's lips when he answers them indicates to them, listen, guys, I see right through you. Verse 26, he says, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, Jesus's assessment might surprise us. I mean, consider what the people have previously said about him. Like back in verse 14, they called Jesus the prophets greater than Moses. Or verse 15, Jesus knows that they want to make him their king. Verse 25, just one verse prior to this, look at how the, what the people call Jesus. They call him rabbi or teacher. What it, it doesn't seem like the people have that bad of a view of him, so what's the big deal? Well, Jesus can see through what they say and see into what they actually think in their hearts. Jesus recognizes that they just want the benefits of the kingdom. They don't actually want to be near the king himself. Jesus recognizes that they might call him teacher, but they actually have no interest in what the teacher teaches. They just care about the stuff that he can give them. Jesus sees through them. And friend, I have news for you that might be scary, but it's true. Jesus doesn't just see through them. He sees through you. Jesus knows whether you worship him or whether you're just using him. Jesus knows whether or not your religion is just a performance or if your religion is based on a worshipful relationship of him. I think about Jesus' many statements concerning the Pharisees. I remember Matthew 6, verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Why? That they may be seen by others. Or I think of Jesus' warning from Matthew 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Or even I think back to what was said earlier about Jesus in the gospel of John, John chapter 2, verses 25, 24 to 25. It says, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus sees through people. Friend, this should be humbling for you and for me. We should ask ourselves, do you really love and worship Jesus for who he is? 
Or does it just appear like you do and you actually care more about other things? Or do you come to church just because it's a nice habit and you want to be regarded as a good moral person? Or is your presence here at church the overflow of your worship of and love for Jesus Christ? You see, you might be able to put on a convincing performance for other people, but the Lord can see through it. Yeah, I think all of us would agree that there are few things more distasteful and off-putting than a person who holds himself up as religious, but as shallow and a hypocrite. And you know what? Jesus couldn't agree anymore. This should leave us all humbled and convicted. But even here, just because Jesus sees through you and me, it does not have to leave us devastated. Because time after time, even when Jesus sees and knows the worst about people, he still comes close to them. That's what he did with Matthew, the tax collector. That's what he did with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. That's what he did with the Samaritan woman at the well. And that's what he does here with this group of people. This group of people who have a shallow and fake interest in Jesus. After his assessment of them in verse 26, you know, Jesus might have said, you know what, guys, I don't have time for fake and phony people like you. And then he could have just left. But that's not what Jesus does. Because Jesus is more gracious than you and me. He sees your worst and then he summons you to come to him. That's the second way he relates to them. He summons them to come to him. And in his summons to come to him, he summons them to reprioritize. Look with me again at verse 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God the father has set his seal. So just looking at that verse, what is it that this group of people prioritizes? Well, they prioritize the physical. They prioritize the temporary. Now, let me just be clear. Is Jesus saying that they shouldn't work at all for food? That they shouldn't work hard to provide food for their families? Is is that what Jesus is saying? No, I I don't think so. I I just remember what he did the previous day. Jesus just fed 20,000 people with physical food because he was concerned about them. Well, look back at verse 27. Is Jesus just feeding into the stereotype of Christians that Christians are a bunch of killjoys that we never actually enjoy all the good things in life? Is that what Jesus is doing? Is he real stuffy here? No, I don't think he's saying that. Remember just a few chapters back, Jesus is the one who went to a wedding and presumably enjoyed himself. So Jesus must mean something different than when he talks about working for the food that perishes. When he says that, he must mean something closer to obsessing over the food that perishes. To put all your eggs into a basket that won't last. To give all your attention, all your affection, all your adoration into what's temporary. It reminds me of a striking image from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 46 verse 1. It says, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops low. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. Bell and Nebo were Babylonian gods. And in Isaiah 46, verse 1, God is basically telling his people the same thing Jesus is telling the crowd here. He's telling them, listen, the idols that you worship can't carry you. You have to carry them. 
So when his summons to come to him, Jesus summons us to reprioritize. And each one of us needs this instruction. Each one of us needs this instruction because each of our hearts, as John Calvin has put it, is a factory of idols. You know, idols aren't just bad things we obsess over instead of God. Idols are even good things we obsess too much over instead of God. It looks like this. We give ultimate importance to things that only have temporary significance. I wonder, friend, what is that for you? What is that thing of temporary significance that you give ultimate importance? There are so many different examples. It could really be anything. Is it your spouse or is it the prospect of having a spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your work? Is it your comfort? Is it your reputation or your image? Is it your politics? Is it your sports? What do you most naturally daydream about? What garners your most attention, your most affection, your most adoration? My friend, if that's anything but Jesus, the verified son of God, well, then that thing cannot carry you. You will have to carry it. So when it summons to come to him, Jesus summons them to reprioritize and he summons them to rethink. The dialogue continues in verse 28. Look there with me. Then he said to them, or then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. All right, look, look closely there. Can you spot the difference between their question and Jesus's answer? You see, according to the people, the work of God begins with doing. But according to Jesus, the work of God begins with believing. So let me clarify again. Does this mean that what we do doesn't matter? No, it just can't be where we start. The Bible says that God saves us through faith alone in Christ alone, but our faith is never alone. We display our faith as genuine by doing good works. But you see, each one of us needs this instruction to rethink because it's our nature to think that we can do enough to earn God's love and to earn God's favor. I mentioned a couple minutes ago, Jesus's warning from Matthew 7, where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus continues there, he goes on to describe what those people say to him when they will stand before him on the day of judgment. What do those people say? What do they talk to Jesus about? Those people in Matthew 7, they, they talk about all the things that they have done. That, that's what they talk about. It, really what it's like is they, they stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and basically they submit to Jesus their own personal spiritual resume. So picture this. You can use your imagination if you like. Picture yourself standing before Jesus on what you can call your heavenly interview day. Right? You, you dress your best. You prepare thoroughly. And you don't just have a resume ready. You have an entire binder ready. Right, a binder that's you know, color-coded, it's got tabs in it, it's very nice, and you give your extra copy to the Lord. <laughs> and you tell him, Jesus, let me turn your attention to subsection A, where you'll, where you'll see my volunteer experience. You'll notice, Jesus, that I have 15 years experience volunteering in a soup kitchen every single week. Now, just for your reference, Appendix A is my neighbor Kevin's resume. 
Now, you'll notice Kevin doesn't have any volunteer experience. Now, just keep that in mind in your assessment of me. Subsection B, Jesus, is my church attendance and my church involvement. You notice, never miss a Sunday. If I do, maybe it's one a year. Subsection C, this one's important too. This is my political affiliation. You'll find that I supported all the right candidates and I belong to all the right groups. Subsection D of my resume, Jesus is also made very important, maybe the most important. This section outlines all the things that I've never done. You'll see here listed things like murder, things like adultery, things like theft. Now, Jesus, I think what you'll find here is pretty impressive. I'll look forward to hearing from you soon. <laughs> you might poke fun at this. But in all seriousness, what is on your spiritual resume? If you had to write one up, it, it, what would you put on it? Good chapter to reflect on, maybe this afternoon, is Philippians chapter 3. There, the Apostle Paul writes what amounts to his spiritual resume. Let me tell you something, it's better than yours. And you know what he does with it? He rips it up. He says, this is, this is like stuff I go to the bathroom with, <laughs> basically. Paul says, listen, I'm not righteous because of what I have done. I am righteous because of what Christ has done in my place. The work of God be, be, begins with believing in the one who was sent to live the perfect life you didn't live and die the death that you deserve and who rose again, defeating your sin and your death. Well, my friend, you need to rethink. Make your resume Christ's work, not yours. Christian, you still need to rethink because we drift all the time thinking that we start with doing instead of start with believing. So Jesus' command is to seek him, not temporary physical bread. He relates to the people by seeing through them, by summoning them to come to him, which means they'll need to reprioritize and rethink. And this might come as a shock to you, but the people he's talking to still don't get it. And so Jesus relates to them in a third way. He spells it out for them. Look again at verses 30 and 31. The people want Jesus to prove himself. They remember our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness after being delivered from Egypt. So Jesus, if, if you keep pointing to yourself, then can you top that? Now, we don't get to know all that's going through their minds at this point. I can't help but think when looking at verses 30 and 31, don't these people remember what Jesus just did the day before? Did they forget that or was it just not good enough for them? You see, here's another example. We've talked about this. Friends, unbelief is never satisfied. Unbelief is never satisfied. Christian, don't be surprised when you see people who act similarly to this because you and I once did as well. Don't be discouraged or surprised when you answer every single question or, or address every single objection and people still don't get it and people still aren't interested. Listen, this isn't, a, this isn't an excuse to be lazy. It's not an excuse to just not know why you believe what you believe. But this is a reminder that there are people who saw Jesus face to face 
and refuse to believe. Unbelief is never satisfied. That's why God must do the work in our hearts that we can't do ourselves. And Jesus will talk about that in just a few verses. So in verses 32 to 33, despite this offensive question, Jesus spells it out for them. They talk about the bread their ancestors ate in the wilderness, but they don't understand. That bread in, back in Moses' time pointed to something else, rather it pointed to someone else who is better. To quote commentator Don Carson, the true bread is not what the father gave through Moses, but what he is now giving in his son. The original manna pointed to the manna to come. You see, because Jesus is the bread who doesn't just give physical life, he gives eternal life. He's not just for the Jewish people. He says he'll do this for for everybody from every nation of the world. But they're just still stuck on the physical. They still just don't get it. Verse 34, they're like the woman at the well a couple chapters earlier. They think Jesus has access to some kind of magical super bread. And they want to eat it all the time. So again, Jesus spells it out for them. My goodness, he's patient. He tells them, listen, no, I am the bread of life, not something separate from me. This is one of seven I am statements from Jesus in the book of John. And here in verse 35, Jesus is clearly using a metaphor. He's speaking symbolically. Of course, Jesus is not literally physical bread. He's saying, just as you need bread to live physically, you need me to live spiritually and eternally. He, notice, he doesn't tell them, I am the bread of life and you need to eat me. No, look what he tells them. I am the bread of life and you need to come to me and believe in me. That's how they should interpret the metaphor. That's gonna be important for us to keep in mind for the rest of the chapter. Because when Jesus says things like, feed on my flesh and drink my blood, we refer back here to verse 35. Those are symbolic ways of saying, come to me and believe in me. He says that those who believe in him will never hunger and thirst again. Again, he's not speaking physically. He's saying that to have eternal life, you don't need anything more than me. Friend, it's a reminder, don't add to Jesus. Don't add to Jesus. Don't add self-help tips. Don't add man-made tradition. Because when you add to Jesus, you imply that Jesus isn't enough. So let this beautiful announcement ring true and land on you afresh. Jesus is enough. Those who come to him will never hunger again. And Jesus clarifies too, it's not like they need to keep coming to Jesus again and again and again in order to get filled up again and again and again so that eventually they'll never hunger and thirst again. No, Jesus is saying, come to me right now and you will never hunger and thirst spiritually. In other words, friends, come to Jesus right now and you will be washed, not just of some of your sins, you will be washed and cleansed of all of your sins. You come to Jesus right now and you will have not some of, but all of what you need to crave your spiritual hunger, to ease your restlessness. So this is what Jesus does for them. He, he commands them, seek me, not just physical bread. He sees through what they actually seek. He tells them to reprioritize. He tells them, you guys need to rethink of what it means to be doing the work of God. And he just spells it out for them. You need me, not something else. 
And friends, uh, just in a few minutes, this is, this is what Hannah will proclaim in her baptism. Hannah will, by, by getting baptized, she is saying, I have come to Jesus and no one else for life. And I believe in him, the one who died for me, the one who rose again for me. And this is the one that I belong to forever. This is the one I follow. But here in the, in the rest of this section from verses 36 to verse 40, we don't really get a happily ever ending uh, at, at this point. Verse 36, Jesus recognizes that they still don't recognize him. He commands them to seek him, but they still don't seek him. And yet from this point on, Jesus remains confident. Even though the people refuse to come to him, Jesus remains confident. He remains confident really in light of two lingering questions. So here we have this big crowd in Capernaum. None of them gets it. None of them is seeking him. So a question becomes, will anybody seek Jesus? And Jesus can confidently say, despite what's in front of him, yes, people will seek me and believe in me. Look at the first part of verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice where Jesus' confidence lies. Jesus' confidence does not lie in the people's choice of God. It lies in God's choice of people. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I'm looking out at you people and I know that there are plenty of good people out there who have what what it takes within them to come to me one day. I mean, just look at the crowd. Just look at what the people have been saying. What could possibly be in them that would inspire Jesus to confidence that people would eventually come to him? No, so Jesus can look at stubborn and blind unbelief that's right in front of him and still be confident that people will come to him. How? Because his confidence doesn't lie in people's choice of God. It lies in God's choice of people. People will come to Jesus not because people have it in them, but because the Father has chosen them. Romans 9 verse 11 says that God chose them not because of the good he saw in them, but because of his own good pleasure and grace. Listen, this is an original to me. I just don't remember where I heard it. If Jesus is confident that people will come to him, if that rested in the people's choice of God, it it would look something like this. It would look like God standing on the shore uh, of the ocean. And he looked out and he saw drowning, struggling people. And what God did out of his love and mercy is that he kind of threw out one of those buoys, one of those lifeguard circle things. He threw one of those out into the water. And that is essentially Jesus. And God just waits patiently on the shore for those struggling, doubting people uh, to, to take hold of Jesus and to grab onto the buoy. You see, if, if Jesus' confidence is that people will choose God, then it would be like this. It, but, but you see, if it is like this, if, if that is the scenario, then it would have been possible that no one takes hold of that buoy. It would have been possible that Jesus could die and rise again, and no one believes in him. Did Jesus just die for a possibility? Jesus didn't live, die, and rise again so that our salvation would be possible. He lived, died, and rose again so that our salvation would be actual. Right here in John 6, Jesus knows his work won't be a waste. 
So the image is more like this, that the father stands on the shore of the ocean. He doesn't just see drowning people. He sees dead people at the bottom of the ocean. And he tells his son, I am giving these people to you. Go get them. Give them life and they will come to you. Notice, we are the ones who come to Jesus. I love what Dane Ortland says. He says, we are not dragged, kicking and screaming. Divine grace is so radical that it reaches down and turns around our very desires. Our eyes are opened and Christ becomes beautiful so that we actually come to him. Friend, if you're not a Christian, you might wonder, has God chosen me? Well, my friend, that's not what Jesus wants you to wrestle with first. First comes his command back in verse 29. Believe in the son of God who lived, died, and rose again in the place of sinners like you. And when you do that, you'll soon come to realize that you only did that because God drew you in and chose you. Christian, I wonder, what do you think when you look out at the world? Do you see the same stubborn and blind unbelief that Jesus does here? Do you get angry at the news? I've talked to some of you. I know some of you get angry at the news. (laughs) Do you see this same stubborn and blind unbelief that Jesus did? How can you have any shred of confidence that when we declare Jesus's command to believe in him, that people will come to him? How can you have any shred of confidence with what you see in front of you? Well, it's because, friend, your confidence should lie in the same place that Jesus' confidence lies. Not in people's choice of God, but in God's choice of people. The difference is this. Jesus gives us his great commission, right? Matthew 28, go out into the world, make disciples of all nations. What's the attitude that we are gonna fulfill the great commission with? Are we gonna go out and speak Jesus' command, believe in me, just sort of with the attitude of, well, I sure hope people respond. Is is that gonna be our, our attitude with that? You know, people who have that attitude very easily resort to gimmicks and manipulation to get people to respond. Or are we going to fulfill the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, tell people to believe in Jesus? Are we going to fulfill it with the attitude, I know that people will respond to this because my confidence is Jesus's confidence. I know that people might not choose God for themselves, but I know that God has chosen people. You know, that's the same confidence that God, that that Jesus inspired the apostle Paul with in the book of Acts. Chapter 18, Paul is getting ready to go to the city called Corinth. Now, those of you who who get upset at the news, uh, you think our world is bad, you would be floored by what happened in the city of Corinth. (laughs) Paul doesn't want to go. And what is, how how does Jesus get Paul to go to Corinth? How does Jesus get Paul to be confident? He says, Paul, keep speaking. Fear not. Why? Because I have many people who are my people in this city. God's choice of people gives us confidence, even when things seem grim. There is one more uh, lingering question. So when people come to Jesus, what will happen to them? What will happen to the people who do come to Jesus? That's what Jesus talks about to close out this passage. Yeah, he says, those who have come to me, I will never cast out. Those whom Jesus has purchased, he does not take back. Those whom Jesus has saved, he secures. 
Jesus explains why he can say this so confidently in verses 38 to 40. And again, his confidence rests in the same place. It rests in God, not people. He tells us that the father's will or the father's plan is not just that he should save the people he's given to him. It's that he should also keep and preserve the people he's given to them. God's plan is for Jesus not just to save people, but to bring them home to heaven and to raise them from the dead. Jesus says, this is my father's will and I will accomplish it. In other words, Jesus is confident that people will remain with him. And his confidence isn't first that people will hold on to him. His confidence is that he will hold on to us. My Christian brother and sister, you who have come to and believe in Jesus, let me ask you, why are you still a Christian? Why'd you, why'd you get up to this morning and you still wanted to come to church? Why do you still believe that the gospel is true? Is it because of anything about you? No. It's evidence that what Jesus says is true, that he has not lost you. And let his confidence be your confidence because if it depended on you to hold on to him, you would lose your grip. But if it depends on him to hold on to you, he will not lose you. That's what we read earlier from Psalm 63, verse eight. David says, my soul clings to you. Why? Because your right hand upholds me. Jesus is confident that nothing can thwart his father's will. Let his confidence be your confidence. If God has purposed to save you and bring you to himself for eternity, nothing can break that purpose. If there was nothing that you did that caused God to choose you, my friend, the good news is that there is nothing you can do that can cause God to leave you. If your unbelief did not keep God from changing your heart, he can overcome your remaining unbelief and keep your heart. Jesus is confident that nothing can break his promise. Let his confidence be your confidence. Yes, it's true. Jesus still sees through you, friend. But those who have come to Jesus as Lord and Savior do not have to be afraid that their Lord and Savior will cast them out. You don't have to be afraid that Jesus will get tired of you. You don't have to be afraid that Jesus will regret getting involved with you. Because Jesus could no more cast you out than he could stop loving his father. His father's will is for him to preserve you and Jesus will not fail. Jesus could no more cast you out than he could disobey or he could break a promise. So yes, even when we are stubborn and blind, Jesus will not fail. Even when we go for cheap counterfeits rather than the true bread of life, Jesus will not fail. He will preserve us. I love how the group City of Light expresses this truth in the song, Jesus Strong and Kind. We'll, we'll close on this note. The song goes like this. It says, Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to him. Jesus said that if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. This is where it changes. Jesus said that if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross that he will come to me. For the Lord is good and faithful. 
he will keep us day and night. Therefore, we can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. Let's pray. Lord, on our own, we are stubborn and blind. We thank you that, uh, that you care more about the surface. We thank you even for the hard truth that you see through fake and phony words that we say. We ask God that you, your word would, would pierce through our hearts and actually change them so that, we, that you overcome our unbelief and that we believe and seek Jesus, the true bread of life. Seek no other. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep seeking you. And we are confident that we can only because you promise that you will hold on to us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.